I want to offer a warm welcome to Marsha Montenegro on the A Minute to Midnight show. We've had Marsha on a couple of times now and the last time was very, very good and we covered uh, some important topics. And so I'm very pleased to have you back today because I'm sure this will be another fascinating and very important discussion. Well, thank you, Tony. Thanks for having me back. And I, I do hope it will be interesting and educational for everyone. Oh, I'm sure it will be educational. The last couple of times have certainly been educational. And just very quickly give some background again as to your website and, and who you are. Okay, sure. Yes, um, my website, first of all, is www.christiananswersforthenewage.org. I have a lot of articles there on various New Age topics. I was involved in the New Age for a number of years, and that included uh, studying and practicing some Eastern spiritual beliefs uh, like Hinduism and Buddhism, and also studied some Taoist ideas. I was also interested in the paranormal, and I was a professional astrologer uh, for several years, and I taught astrology president of the Astrological Society and chairperson of the Astrology Board of Examiners. So I had a lot of in-depth experience with (laughs) astrology and what it is and how an astrologer does readings, etc. So all of that took place over about 20 years, not astrology, it was more the last 10 years, but All the other stuff was about 20 years until God intervened in my life and um, I encountered the true Jesus and trusted him and became a Christian. And a few years after that, uh, the Lord just started opening doors for me to share my story and information and that led to a full-time ministry. So I've been doing this full-time ministry, Christian Answers for the New Age, since 1998. Wow, that's that's a long while now. Yeah, it is. I know every time I say that and I say how long I was in the New Age, I'm thinking, oh, man, people are going to think I'm really ancient. They're going to think, oh, my goodness. So, you know, of course, I started all this when I was three. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Okay. <laughs> and by the way, you mentioned, you know, the real Jesus because – of course, there are so many sort of false Jesus, the you know yeah. Jesus Christ consciousness and the Maitreya and all these New Age concepts of Jesus, which are not the real Jesus of the Bible at all, and right. um, and we see a lot of that in Eastern mysticism, the sort of false Christ consciousness. 
Right, exactly. Yes, there is a lot of reference to Jesus and Christ in the New Age. And uh, some people in the New Age will even call themselves Christians. Uh, so sometimes they use the term, I'm a mystic Christian. Uh, but So you have to be careful because you have to know what do they mean by Jesus? You know, what, what Jesus are they talking about? Who do they think Jesus is? Or if they refer to God, who, who do you think God is? You know, I always tell people they need to ask the person to clarify it if they're not sure, you know, about the person's um, beliefs or they kind of wonder about it. You, you need to ask. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, there are so many counterfeits, that's for sure. So uh, let's just start off a little bit with the whole Eastern mysticism and um, and all of that. You're, you were involved in that and, and meditation and those sorts of things in the past. Yes, I, I got interested in it very early on when I was in college. I did an independent study on Gandhi and I got interested in some Hindu ideas. I didn't explore them in depth at the time, but it had it had caught my interest. And later on, when I had more time, I started reading about Vedanta, which is non-dual Hinduism. Hinduism has a there's a dualistic Hinduism and a non-dual. Non-dual Hinduism is the kind that's influenced the New Age, and that is where there are no distinctions. So everything is all part of the same, you know, energy or source and which is God and there are no real distinctions. So I got interested in that and was reading on that. And a few years later, uh, after delving into some other areas, I joined a, well, I didn't really join, but I started attending a Tibetan Buddhist meditation, which was being held weekly. And I was shown how to do Tibetan Buddhist meditation. And I started reading several of the books that they had at this particular center where they, they taught it. And this was a group of people who were followers of um, a man named Choigam, uh, Choigam Trungpa, uh, who, is, who was one of the heads of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. A lot of people think all Tibetan Buddhism it has to do with the Dalai Lama, but actually the Dalai Lama is the head of only one of the four schools of Tibetan Buddhism. So when I say four schools of Tibetan Buddhism, it's kind of like saying four major denominations, more or less, just so people know what I'm talking about. So they each each of these lineages has their own uh, teachings and their own kinds of variations on Buddhism, although it's very similar. And so Choigam Trungpa had established some followers in the United States because he had a big center in Boulder, Colorado. And from that, a lot of people went to different cities in the country uh, who were his followers and started little groups. And there was a group like that where I was living at the time, which was Atlanta, Georgia. And I was going to this group and listening to their lectures and doing the meditation with them. So that was my first formal 
I guess you would say, formal introduction to Eastern meditation. That's the first time I did the Eastern meditation, and I did it the way they taught me. Now, later, um, after a little while with that group, I got interested in Zen Buddhism. I don't remember how, probably from reading something. And Zen Buddhism, of course, is still Buddhism, but it is practiced rather differently from Tibetan Buddhism. Tibetan Buddhism um, retains more Hindu ideas and practices in it. And also, uh, when Buddhism went to Tibet, because Tibet is so isolated, they were practicing an indigenous religion called Bon, and Buddhism kind of merged with Bon. And so Tibetan Buddhism has a lot of animistic and shamanistic elements to it, much more than other forms of Buddhism. Zen Buddhism came about um, centuries later when some Buddhists were trying to make Buddhism um, I, I want to use the right words here. They wanted to make, it was kind of like they were trying to reform Buddhism, <laughs> and they wanted it to be less complicated. And so Zen is very straightforward. And there's the idea that you have to grasp the true nature of reality through this individual experience that you get from meditating or sometimes from a teacher's question to you, which is supposed to maybe spark the understanding uh, of what the true nature of reality is. So this is what Buddhism is about. It is about the true nature of reality. And Zen was a more direct and less complicated system, and so it appealed to me more. It also had a lot, there was a lot of material on it. And it was easy to find things to read. And I, I got very interested in it. And I even went to a couple of places in Atlanta where they did Zen Buddhist meditation, where you could go on a certain day and you would sit with other people. They call meditation sitting. They don't even call it meditating. Um, so they say you're, you're sitting. Are you doing your sitting? And because um, the idea is that you don't do anything fancy you don't make any big effort because if you do that you you won't get it you have to just you have to just be um kind of not expecting anything <laughs> and and if you do the meditation the way they teach it that's supposed to move you forward so i learned the zen buddhist meditation which was a little different from the Tibetan Buddhist meditation. Now, meanwhile, I was taking classes at a center where they were teaching new age things, like they were teaching tarot cards, astrology, past life regression, which is where you undergo a procedure or technique that is supposed to help you remember your past lives. And so they had these classes and teachers at this place, and I was taking classes there. Oh, psychic development was another class. In fact, I took like three psychic development courses um, in that place. And so I was doing that at the same time, and combine, you know, I was doing, I was kind of in these different areas, but all at the same time. And this is very typical of New Age. This is kind of what New Age is. It's a blend of different different things drawing from different sources. 
And so I was doing that as well. And there was meditations that were taught there, like in the psychic development class. You know, we were taught another type of meditation. And so I learned that as well. So I was learning, you know, several kinds of meditation. So I, I'm very familiar with the techniques done in the Buddhist meditation, even Hindu meditation, which I did some as well on my own before I got into the Buddhist meditation, and then uh, the New Age types meditation. Now, all of these meditations have one thing in common, and that is the idea that you need to stop the thinking mind. So that you have to do these techniques so that you're not sitting there thinking, you're not analyzing, in other words. You're just you're just letting things come through, kind of float through your mind like clouds. And sometimes now that's one technique. Another technique that's used is where you have a word or phrase that you repeat either out loud or in your mind. And if other thoughts intrude, like you start thinking about an errand you have to do or you start thinking about a problem you have, if that happens, then you're supposed to repeat the word or phrase. Now, this is called a mantra. And actually, it comes from Hinduism. And in Hinduism, a mantra is not just a word or phrase that you repeat to help you stop thinking, but it's actually supposed to have a spiritual power. When you when you say or think those words, and that's actually supposed to have a spiritual effect on you to help you um, get more advanced in your enlightenment, um, just to put it in terms that maybe make sense to people. So <clears throat> that was one technique. And I did do some meditation with a mantra and Tibetan Buddhism teaches meditation with a mantra. Um, that's very well known, Om Mani Padme Hum, which is something that you're supposed to repeat. And I did a lot of meditations with that. I actually had some weird experiences with it. Uh, when I got into the Buddhist meditation, I dropped using the mantra. And the Buddhist meditation is more stark. You know, you there's nothing fancy about it. There's no words, etc. And, 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 you know, this is in distinction from Tibetan Buddhist, Buddhism. So I should say the Zen Buddhist meditation that I did was where you sit and you just breathe. Um, in the Tibetan Buddhist meditation, they did not teach me that mantra. That was something I got from doing it on my own from a book. But they did teach us to count the out-breaths. So you breathe in, and then as you breathe out, you count that, you know, one, two, three. And you're just supposed to do that and keep you keep doing that throughout the meditation. So I did do that when I was with the Tibetan Buddhist group. When I learned the Zen Buddhist meditation, you didn't count the breaths. And so you just sat there, and you're just supposed to let thoughts, any thoughts that come through your mind, just float through. You just let them let them go. You don't you don't try to think about them or hold them in your mind or analyze them or anything. And if you do that, if you're doing the technique that way, after a while, you um, you feel 
you really do feel like you're not thinking. I mean, you feel like you're just sort of this being who's sitting there and you're kind of sitting in this nothingness. Um, that, that was how I felt. Like I was just sort of part of this big nothingness, um, that, (laughs) that was out there. Sometimes I thought of it as an energy since I was a new ager, but I didn't really, I didn't feel like a separate individual and I didn't feel like there was anything happening. It was kind of like non-happening experience. Um, and it can feel very peaceful because nothing's happening. You know, so (laughs) you're feeling you're feeling calm and you're not worried. You're not thinking about anything and you feel very calm and peaceful. Now, sometimes when I did this at home, um, I actually felt that I was sort of merging. I was merging with some kind of outside force or energy. And I would feel like um, my body and, and, and who I was. I would feel like it was dissolving. It was kind of like when you put a sugar cube in a hot cup of tea or a hot cup of coffee, you know, it just kind of dissolves. That was very much how I would feel. And it was very strange. It was a very strange sensation. And, um, I, I, you know, I think I had mixed feelings on it. Sometimes I thought, this is a good thing. You know, I'm really... I felt like maybe I was progressing spiritually to have that experience. And other times it was a little scary because the idea of yourself dissolving is usually not something most people would think of as a good thing. No, I mean, <laughs> people can lose their minds entirely, can't they? <laughs> exactly. And in fact, um, mindfulness, which we talked about in yeah. the, la- the last time, the Zen Buddhist meditation, there have been some negative results where people have had breakdowns and psychotic experiences doing it. And I think part of that is because they weren't warned about, you know, the fact that that could happen and they didn't really know the purpose of the meditation, which is to see that yourself doesn't exist. So the experience I was having of dissolving, that was what I was supposed to get that my real self did not really exist. And that is scary. And of course, it's it's false Yeah. because we do have individual selves. And, um, you know, we know from God's word, God create creates people as individuals. We are all individuals and we remain as individuals. We don't ever merge with other people or with some kind of energy. And so anyway, I, you know, I felt like I was doing a good thing, though. And what happens when you do these meditations, any of the ones I've described, is that for most people, after a certain period of time, it could be five minutes, it could be 10, it could be 15, you go into this altered state. And that's mainly, that's the way I describe it is, it's like your mind is in neutral. And so it's just kind of sitting there, it's not really active, your conscious mind is not active your critical thinking skills are suspended. Your analytical skills are suspended. And you're just receptive. Your mind is very, very open. Now, this is not a natural state. A lot of people think, oh, this is 
this is what happens if you daydream or you're looking out the window, you know, and you're just kind of gazing at the window just kind of blankly because you're tired or whatever. That's not the same thing. It is not, and it's not the same as being asleep. It is a particular state where the mind is very receptive. And so when you have this thing going on with your mind, you're open to any influences that want to come in. You're open to maybe some ideas you've read about or heard and you haven't really thought about them. Those those thoughts and ideas have time to kind of soak in and you would not be aware of it. So this is a very receptive state. You're cultivating this very suggestible, receptive state of mind. And of course, if you do this over a period of time, weeks, months, or even years, and I did, you know, I did all this meditation, all the various forms for 14 years. And what happens is it alters your view of reality. You begin to see things very, very differently. And I'm not sure that people realize that they're doing it. I was actively, you know, believing certain things that were altering my my worldview. But I think these meditations I did helped me to do it even more quickly and helped me to be more accepting of the ideas that I was reading about and hearing. So you become very receptive. Now, this state of suggestibility is also known as hypnosis. And do you want me to go on and talk about hypnosis? Yeah, yeah before you do the, go too much into that, how, what about with spirit guides and meditation? Oh, is that yes. how people get in touch with your supposed spirit guides? And, and actually, what do you believe spirit guides are? Yes, I'm glad you asked that because that's a good point to bring up. Uh, yes, this is how many people encounter their spirit guides. Now, it could be that it happens um, sort of accidentally, like they're not planning on it or they're not expecting it, but it happens. It's also how um, people who want to, quote unquote, meet their spirit guide, um, a psychic or somebody else might have them do this kind of, of meditation where your mind gets into that state and then have you... You know, they'll say things. It's a guided visualization or a guided meditation. And that's how actually how I encountered my spirit guide. And it was um, taking a class called Inner Light Consciousness. And this was either right before or right after I had done the Tibetan Buddhist meditation. I, I can't quite recall, but I was in that time period where I was getting introduced to these meditations. And... So the teacher of the class, you know, had, well, first he had, he guided us through visualizations every night. It was the same meditation every night. And then the last night he said, now, um, tonight is going to be a little different because tonight you're going to meet your spiritual master. And that's what he called the spirit mm. guide. And so, you know, he guided us through the meditation and at the end he added on another part to it. And that was where we um, supposedly would see our spirit guide, our, our spiritual master, as he called it. And I and I did. And in fact, everyone in the class did, because afterwards we were supposed to share um, if we wanted to. <laughs> and everyone had 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 the experience. So uh, now this can also be done, unfortunately, 
in ways that seem very innocent. For example, I'll give two examples, um, or maybe not so innocent. The first one, some people won't think is very innocent. But if you're if you're getting um, counseling, sometimes a counselor or therapist will put you in this state. They'll maybe do a guided meditation or visualization with you and have and have you introduce you to quote unquote a friend whom you can talk to and you can um, confide in. Um, I actually know somebody who at the age of 14 um, was raped and they, she was taken to a, a therapist or psychologist and he did this think, you know, in his mind, of course, he thought this was helpful and that she would have somebody she could talk to because she had a very hard time talking about this to anybody. And this, a uh, supposed friend that she was introduced to became a spirit guide and stayed with her until she was in her 30s um, and became a Christian. Um, and even after that, he was still there. And, and, you know, that's why I know about it is because I I um, talked to her I, in person and um, about who the spirit guide was. She was so used to seeing him as a friend. It was hard for her to understand he was evil. So you could meet, you could have, you could meet someone like that, or you could just do a guided visualization where nobody's mentioning you meeting anybody and it could happen. Just, you know, it would just happen. Now, the other way that this is happening, which is very disturbing, is that in some school systems, they have children visualize a special friend whom they can talk to. Uh, so if they're, you know, if they're worried or they're afraid, um, and they aren't around their parents or something, or they're afraid to tell their parents about something, they can talk to their special friend. They were actually doing this in some schools in Atlanta right after I became a Christian. I read an article in the newspaper about it, and I wrote a letter to the editor, and I said, you know, <laughs> this is... This is a technique from, from the occult. And they actually, they published the letter, which was good. I don't think it stopped what they were doing in the schools, but at least some people got the information. So here children, I think in many of these cases, children could meet a spirit guide this way. So this state of mind is used, yes, to meet a spirit guide. Now, who are the spirit guides? The spirit guides are fallen angels. And I always call them fallen angels because um, when I'm talking to people who aren't Christians and especially new age, new agers are very much into angels. You know, angels are a big business in the new age. And uh, there are people who claim to talk to angels and get messages from angels. And, and people just flock around these people um, and really believe them. And they actually think that, you know, this is some people even think this is a Christian thing. So it, angels are a very big attraction in the occult and in, in the new age. So I, I always say fallen angels because I want people to understand there's good angels and there's fallen angels. All angels are not good angels. And that, I think that gets the point across much better. And I do believe that the unclean spirits and the demons that Jesus referred to um, are fallen angels. Some people have different ideas, but I think 
theologically and biblically speaking, they're fallen angels. So what you're getting, you think you're getting a friend or a spiritual guide, and you're actually getting a fallen angel. And we know from 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan can be disguised as an angel of light. Um, so these guides can appear to be very benevolent and even beautiful or somehow appealing or attractive. And of course, I think that's how they almost always appear initially. Um, so that that's, you know, so there's two big dangers of this altered state. One is that you're receptive to ideas that otherwise you might not be receptive to. Um, you can cultivate an, a, a worldview that is different. In other words, your worldview may change over time. So that's really two things. And then the third thing is you could encounter a spirit guide. So there's actually three dangers of getting into this altered state. And this is a state that you're in in hypnosis. The altered state in meditation is like a very light hypnotic trance. You're still aware of, of who you are, where you are, your surroundings. It's not like you're out of it. You know, you know exactly where you are and you know what you're doing, but your mind is not in the, in the normal thinking, critical thinking state. So you're very open. So this is a state that, that most people, if they're hypnotized, go into this. Now, you can go much deeper where you're, where you're not going to remember what happened. Um, you, you know, that would be a much deeper state um, that maybe um, a hypnotherapist would put you in. Um, or sometimes these hypnotists who do it for entertainment will put people, call people up on stage and hypnotize them and then have them do, you know, silly things, bark like a dog or roll on the floor or something. And the people do not do not remember when they come out of it because they've been put into a deeper, a deeper state. But that, of course, is just as dangerous. And so, I, you know, I get asked a lot about hypnotherapy because you see advertisements for it. People who want to stop smoking or they want to lose weight or they, they want to break some kind of bad habit. And hypnotherapists claim that they can help you do this by putting you in a hip, hypnotic state. And then they give suggestions to you that are supposed to help you. Um, kick this bad habit. And I'm not saying that it doesn't work. I think that in some cases it works. But what I tell people is it is not worth the risk to do this. You don't want to have your mind in that state because pretty much what you're doing is just letting your mind be manipulated by somebody else. And that's that's never good. So <laughs> plus not to mention, you know, what might happen when you're in that state. So I never, you know, I always warn people of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Um, it's become quite popular here in the United States for a number of years because I did a Facebook post on this. Oh, by the way, on Facebook, I have a page, Christian Answers for the New Age. People can like and follow if they want to see my posts on the New Age. And I did one on hypnosis. Um, not long ago, I updated it from something previous I had written. I had a lot of people comment how this was done in their high school. They would have a um, big um, assembly 
in the auditorium and and hypnotists would come in and do a demonstration or it would be done at like a graduation party. Or in one case, there was a newspaper article, just just something that happened very recently, where a hypnotist came to a psychology class in a high school and demonstrated hypnosis on many of the students. I mean, the teacher invited this hypnotist in to do this. Um, And I, I have no idea if the parents were told or not, but that would be a really bad thing if the parents hadn't been told about it. And many of the students, you know, talked about the experience and, you know, some of them had kind of a strange feeling when this happened to them. So it's it's people take it as though it's there's nothing harmful in it. They just they either take it as entertainment or they think that it could help them with maybe a bad habit or they just think it's interesting and maybe fun to do. And so you have these hypnotists and hypnotherapists going to schools and doing this. And um, I have in my post on hypnosis at the end, I have some links. One of the links goes to the website of a former hypnotist. I think he's in the UK. And he was a hypnotist for many years. And he said after some things happened, he gave it up. And he now he now warns about it. I don't think he's a Christian but he has some very good warnings about hypnosis. And he said that one of the things that can happen is that the hypnotist can be on the stage hypnotizing somebody, but people in the audience can get hypnotized just from that. It's like a secondhand hypnosis because people who are suggestible in the audience, even though they're not, they're just watching, they can hear the hypnotist and they'll, they'll go under and this happened to him and uh, some other bad things happened that he talks about. And this is why he stopped doing it. And he says it is, it is too dangerous. This is not something you do for entertainment. This is not something to fool around with. When you submit yourself to somebody else's will, that's got to be dangerous. And I mean, you can think of extreme examples like people like Charles Manson. But, um, but yes. you know, that that's the potential. And especially if someone's demonically possessed that's doing the hypnotizing, well, then, in a sense, you're not only submitting to the will of the hypnotist, you're submitting to the will of the demon that's controlling the hypnotist. Well, yes, exactly. And you don't even have to, you know, the person doesn't have to be possessed to be evil. I mean, it could just be an evil person. They don't have to be possessed. I don't think everybody's evil is possessed. Yeah. And, and you know, they're just evil and maybe will manipulate you for a bad reason. Or um, even if they don't intend to do something bad, it could still end up having a bad effect. So, uh, for example, now I have heard um, hypnotists um, and hypnotherapists a few a few times say that what Hitler was doing, he was doing like a mass hypnosis. I don't think that he knew he was doing it. I don't think he understood the con maybe he I don't know if he understood the concept of hypnosis or not, but I think he just had maybe a natural gift for it. And well, he probably he I mean Hitler was an occultist and he had and he was advised by occultists, so maybe yes, he did he know exactly what he was doing. He could have yes, and I if whether he did or not, I you know I have watched some of his some of the old film clips of him speaking. Um, and he and he does have it's it's a certain kind of voice and a pacing in the voice 
he had uh, what you know what you call a mesmerizing effect on people. And I, I do think that there was hypnosis going on there in a lot of his speeches. And in fact, I just used the word mesmerize, and I want to say something about that because that word comes from a man named Anton Mesmer. And Anton Mesmer, who lived like in the 18th century, was one of the early um, proponents of what we now call New Thought. Um, and New Thought was a movement that came from several different people, but the basic ideas were that illness was all caused by the mind or bad thoughts, and they had these strange ideas of how to heal you. So there was a lot of healing going on in this, and Mesmer used to go around and wave his hands over people um, he had all these strange techniques that were supposedly healing people. And what it turns out what he was what he was doing, at least partly doing, is he was hypnotizing people. Now, hypnosis already existed. He didn't invent hypnosis, but his techniques became known for being hypnotic. And so the word mesmerize comes from his name, Anton Mesmer. That's where the word comes from, because he would do these motions with his hands and use his voice a certain way. And people would kind of, some people would just fall on the floor. Um, he could walk into a room and people would fall on the floor. Um, you know, the power, the power of suggestion is part of hypnosis. And it's actually, it's a lot stronger than people realize. I'm sure that people have heard of, of cases like in a, a group of people, maybe in a room and one person starts to feel sick, and then other people start to feel sick. And they may not even really be sick, but <laughs> you know, it's this power of suggestion, like this person's sick and I just ate the same food this person ate, and now I feel sick, yeah, you know? Yeah. It's this power of suggestion, yeah. it's very strong, we're very vulnerable to it. And so um, this is partly what was at work with Anton Mesmer, but that's where that word comes from. And hypnosis was was a big part of the healing methods in this movement. Um, so you've got a lot of a lot of different areas that this is coming from. You know, you've got the altered states you go into with Eastern meditation and New Age meditation, guided visualization and guided meditation being used um, by psychologists and therapists and hypnotherapists and hypnotists doing their thing. Um, I also want to say real quickly, just so people know. Um, that there's a small percentage of people who are very, very easily hypnotized. I mean, you know, you can hypnotize them in like five seconds. They're just, it's just the way their mind is. They're very suggestible. There's a, at uh, the other end of the scale, there's a small percentage of people who ap actually cannot be hypnotized. They just cannot be hypnotized. Most people are in the middle. So the vast majority of us are in the middle. We can be hypnotized not as easily and quickly as the easily hypnotized people, but we can be hypnotized. So most people can be hypnotized. Um, and now something else is coming to me. I didn't mention to you that I would talk about this, but it's related. Um, it's called neuro-linguistic programming. Have you ever heard of it? I have, but I don't really know anything about it. Yeah, it's and it's usually, it's just abbreviated NLP. Um, neuro-linguistic programming, I don't know, I can't think of the history of it right now, but I know it was popularized 
by Tony Robbins, who used to go by the name Anthony Robbins, and now he's called Tony Robbins, and he wrote books, and I guess his most famous book is Awaken the Giant Within You, and he goes around and gives all of these motivational talks, and he's the one who, these fire things where people walk, you know, over these hot coals, et cetera. Um, Tony Robbins popularized NLP, and it's become very widely taught and used a lot more than people know. I was looking into this a few years ago, and I was surprised that NLP is even taught at some sales seminars, that salespeople actually use this. Now, what, you know, let me say what I'm talking about when I say NLP. It's the use of words and gestures to get people to feel or do a certain thing. So it's, you know, it's based a lot on the power of suggestion, but also um, the way a person modulates their voice and gestures that they use. So in many cases, they talk to you a certain way and they may touch your shoulder or something like that. This all, this is all part of NLP and salesmen actually learn this technique. You actually could, or maybe already have encountered a salesman who was using this on you. (laughs) And, and if he was successful, he got you to buy the product. Um, and I didn't realize it was so widely accepted and used in these sales training seminars Um, It's also used by other people who think it's a good way to uh, maybe use in counseling um, or talking to people. Uh, So it's something that people should be aware of. And I did do a couple of um, Facebook posts on it. I'll send you some links um, on that so you'll have them. I didn't think of it before. But hypnosis, it is a, a kind of hypnosis because the person is sort of mesmerizing you and your your their words and movements are are getting you to be suggestible to what they're saying and that's the whole idea behind it so nlp is another another it's not quite the same as the meditation where your mind's open and that you know this is more where you're being manipulated for a certain purpose like to buy a product yeah and um but it's still part of it. It's still part of this whole hypnosis thing. So, you know, this is why it's so important to understand that, you know, our minds are given to us by God. And we are, the more we study God's word and the more we learn it, the more we can guard our minds from this kind of thing. Because when you are really rooted in God's word, not only are you more discerning and alert to something that might be off, but you, your mind is full of, of the Lord. And you're, if you're a believer, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I think this is like a shield. It doesn't mean that you're immune, but I think it acts as a shield to these attempts from people to manipulate you. And certainly uh, the Holy Spirit might probably convict you, you know, if someone's trying to do this or get you to do hypnosis or something, I would hope people would maybe pay attention if they're feeling <laughs> what a lot of, a lot of people use this phrase, a check in their spirit. Yes. Um, yeah. Which I, I, I think what I'm probably- thinking I'm, as I'm listening to you here and I'm thinking the potential for, you know, we know that uh, at some point 
the Antichrist or anti, you know, Antichrist and false prophet will be revealed. And I'm thinking how they could actually use technology. You know, you get somebody with a hypnotic presence, say like Adolf Hitler, and, and a person like that um, to virtually hypnotize the masses through the media to follow, you know, what they want. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, yes, if people can yeah. recognize now the signs of hypnotic, you know, mesmerizing type of person, that may even be helpful. Yes. And, and of course, there are different views of end times. Like some people like myself think the church will be raptured before the Antichrist is here. But whether, you know, whether somebody agrees with that or not, I person this is my own personal view about the incredible speed with which these meditation methods have have entered society all over, you know, all over. I mean, it's all over in Europe. It's here in the States. It's in other places like where you are. And I, to me, I see this as a way to get people's minds to be open to ideas that they normally wouldn't consider. Um, I think that, you know, I think it's making people more suggestible is what I'm saying. I have no proof of that. This is all based on, you know, my own experience and my understanding of the the altered state and things that I've read. Um, I do want to say one time I was giving a talk on on I think at least part of it was on Eastern meditation. And there was um, it was in a private. Well, it was a group from a church, but they were meeting in a private home. And I noticed one man there who kind of stood back from the group and didn't really join in. He was standing the whole time I spoke. And after I finished, he came up to me and said, you know, I'm not a Christian. I was invited to hear you speak. And he said, I'm a hypnotherapist. And he said, everything you said about meditation was true. He said, it's the same state of mind that we get our patients in when we do hypnotherapy. So I had a, a, a personal confirmation from a hypnotherapist that what I was, because that's what I said in my talk. I mentioned hypnosis and how that state was the same. And he came up to me afterwards to confirm it for me, mm-hmm. um, which I really appreciated. I also want to, I can branch out a little from here into the area of the church because we have had this movement now for a good, you know, 15, 20 years where there are these methods in the church that they call prayer or they call it meditation. And actually they're using techniques from Eastern meditation. Um, But they're claiming that it's Christian and that it's biblical. Um, Usually they'll use the term contemplative, you know, centering prayer, contemplative prayer, uh, listening prayer, um, or they'll say this is meditation, you know, as though it's biblical meditation. And this, of course, has has entered the churches. So you have people using these techniques. And I have read books by the people who advocate this. And what they're teaching is the same as what I learned when I was learning the Eastern meditation techniques. They're teaching the exact same thing. Um, some of them teach to use um, use a word or phrase, and, they, and they'll say, you know, to make it sound Christian, they'll say, take a phrase from the Bible. 
you know, take or take a word from the Bible and just repeat that. Well, that doesn't matter. It's still a mantra. It's yeah. still it's still not biblical. Um, or they'll tell you to sit still and breathe, you know, slowly and close your eyes and and don't think, you know, try not to think. And um, they'll even come out and say, if you're praying to God, you shouldn't be thinking about him. I mean, that sounds, you know, like a contradiction, it but does. they actually, they, they, Thomas Keating um, and Basil Pennington, who started this contemplative prayer movement in the 90s, actually say that in their books. Wow. Um, and I heard Thomas Keating in person around 2005. He spoke at a church near here and a friend and I went to hear him. Um, I already knew about him. I had read some of his material. Um, I wanted to see what he said or, or what would happen. And there was quite a few people there. And he led them into one of these so-called contemplative prayers. And, of course, my friend and I did not participate. Um, we sat there and observed. But um, everybody else, except for one person, uh, as far as I know, participated we watched them, and it reminded me of being in the New Age. You know, yeah. everyone sat real still. Some of them even put their hands up on their knees like you do when you meditate in the New Age. And, you know, it was it went on for 20 minutes like that. And then when he um, ended the meditation, he his voice was very, very different. It was like he was coming out of this trance. It was very, very – it was creepy, Tony. It was yeah. just plain creepy. Um, and, and so, um, it was really something to see. It was something else. So this is something else. This is another area. And I do have an article on my website on it called contemplative prayer. Yeah, that's good. Prayer. Good. Yeah. Go mm. And I'm, I'm thinking as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about Bethel church and the meditation, basically prayer house with a pyramid on the top and, and, and you know, well, it's almost like an altar in the middle and so on. And it reminds me so much of the United Nations Meditation Room, which is a pyramid oh. on its side with an altar in the middle and, and all that. And I'm, you know, it's just like, why on earth people are introducing these Eastern kind of concepts into Christianity? It's creeping in more and more. Yes, it is. And I, I mean, to me, it's, it's pretty. It's a pretty simple thing. You looked at the Bible, and you see what prayer and meditation is about, and it has nothing to do with these techniques. It's it's you know not at all like it. The word meditation in the Old Testament, um, the various Hebrew words that are translated meditation or meditate have to do with pondering, reflecting on, thinking about, studying. Uh, memorizing and speaking aloud. And that's what it is. It's speaking aloud God's word. It's memorizing it. It's, of course, people didn't walk around with Bibles in the Old Testament. So they had to learn. They had to memorize God's word and, um, you know, say it over and over and think about it or, or read small portions of it over and over. And this is meditating and you're also thinking about it. Um, and in the in, in prayer, well, we have the model for prayer and the Lord's prayer that Jesus taught. That's the pattern for prayer at all. It's always, you know, verbal. Now it can be quiet, you know, there's of course 
just saying it silently is still prayer. So I'm not talking about that. But it is a verbal, you are using words and concepts when you're communicating with God. Yeah. It's not sitting there in this silence. Um, and all these people who teach this, they talk about how silence is God's first language. And, you know, silence is sacred. I have seen these these actual phrases over and over in these in these books and teachings. Well, there's nothing sacred about silence. And no, silence isn't God's first language. I mean, when we read Genesis 1, of course, God existed from always existed. But when he created, he spoke. It says he spoke and said, let there be light. You know, let there be trees. Let there, you know, he was... You know, I'm not saying he had to speak to create, but the Bible tells us that he spoke. So and how do we have the Bible? How do we know about God and Jesus anyway? Through words, you know, through language. Yeah. It's not through silence. Um, so I'm I'm amazed. It's kind of like, you know, the more convoluted and basically irrational it is, the more profound some people Find it. The opposite of that, of course, are people bombarding themselves with noise all the time, which I think is not good either. You know, they've got to have yeah. the television going or they've got to have music playing or whatever. They cannot ha handle silence, which I think is also ex the other end of the extreme that's not good. Yeah, I mean, depending on why they need it. I actually I actually sometimes work well with the back with a background noise. I don't work well with loud background noise. But sometimes if it's a if it's very quiet um, and kind of even and it's not, you know, going up and down, up and down, um, I'm able to write sometimes better with with a certain kind of music. Um, I don't know why it, it just I don't know. It sort of spurs me on or something. I also have to sleep with white noise. I, it's very hard for me, to, for me to sleep in a completely quiet room. Yeah, that's I, interesting. I know I of other people sleep. like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, whereas I'm the opposite. I find it much easier to sleep in silence unless it's the sound of the ocean or the sound of the rain, which, I, of course, oh. I get where I live. I get both um, and that. But, um, yeah, but I know other people that need white noise, whereas for me, yeah, I, I prefer, you know, a dead you quiet, actually. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people do. A lot of people, a lot of people like that. They don't want any any noise, and they find that very relaxing. Yeah, mind um, you, like I say, kind of the rain on the roof or hearing the sea. Um, you know, if I've got like this time of year because it's summer where I am, so I have my window open, so I can actually hear the sea all night, and I do find that relaxing. And you know, rather than dead silence. But in the winter, of course, I don't have my window open; I would yeah. freeze to death. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You always the sound of the the ocean is is wonder. I love the sound of the ocean, so that's great. You can hear that in the summer. That's really nice. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I just you know I think some people just have different needs based on whatever. But yeah, I I I, I there's no reason to not like silence or not want it. But I just don't think we need to make it a spiritual thing. Yeah. Fair you know, enough. that was my point. It's yeah. nothing spiritual about silence. Yes. Yeah, that's um, fair enough. Yeah. You know. Hmm. So that's yeah. what I was <laughs> Yep. So last question before we close up then. What what do you think um, sh people should do when it comes to hypnosis being offered? Uh, well, say they're a parent and 
that they've got kids at, at school and they find out that it's going to happen or, or or a church or whatever it is what you know what would you say to people in terms of how to to deal with it well i would say uh definitely not to participate and if your children are in a school um i tell i tell parents this all the time you need to find out what programs are being offered at the school what are the day-to-day programs? Because a lot of things that they do at the schools, they'll use a word for that sounds very innocuous. You know, they might say, oh, this is our wellness class. And then they're teaching mindfulness. Or, you know, who, who knows? They might have a, a hypnotist in to talk about hypnotherapy. So, I, you know, I think you have to be very proactive and specific um, in a non-belligerent manner. Find out what exactly is being done in the elementary school, definitely, because children are really vulnerable there. Um, and then as they're older, also find out about the programs. And at that age, once they're, you know, 12 or 13, you can tell them, look, if this ever happens, I want you to tell your teacher you can't participate. You know, if you find out it, uh, everybody's going to the gym to hear a hypnotist, then you just tell your 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 teacher that your your mother or your father has said, no, um, I cannot participate in this. Um, you know, I don't you know, I don't know, you know, how far parents want to go with this. I personally, you know, took extra steps when my son was in school to keep him out of such programs. And you have to you it takes energy and motivation to do it, because a lot of times you come up against people who are trying to talk you out of it. That's what happened to me. So I was very determined. I knew I was right. And um, that is my son. And I'm telling you, this is this is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, was, I, was a, I was a mother bear for sure. And um, I was able to keep him out of some of the programs uh, starting at, in the third grade on up through high school. So... You, you know, you need and sometimes you need to be creative. I have I have talked to a lot of parents who have uh, sent me private messages about things, programs in their school, even as even as as young as like first, second, third grade when they're, you know, six, seven, eight years old, where they're having people coming in and doing Tibetan bells and ringing Tibetan bells and then having them close their eyes and breathe slowly and basically kind of a meditation. And um, in some cases, the parents have contacted some Christian legal teams um, and consulted them. And, and these people have written letters to the school saying, you, you cannot force this on this child because the parents do not want this kind of spiritual um, teaching or practice, you know, put on their child. So in some cases, parents have gone really far to, to avoid this. And in some, and and you have to, in some schools in California, they're very aggressive with these kind of things. And, And a lot of that is in the schools. It's in the schools all over, but California seems to be one of the areas I've I've heard from the most right. <laughs> from parents where this is this is extremely common, uh, but they're even doing it around here where I live in in Northern Virginia and other places. Um, you have to you just have to decide. 
okay, you know, this is my child and this is, these are my beliefs. I need to stand up for what I know is right. And I need to go talk to somebody, whether it's the teacher or the principal or what, or whatever you can do. I would do everything I could do possible. Great. So that's what I tell people. I'm, I'm, I'm very, um, strong on that. Excellent. Okay. So what we better close up. Can you once more give people your website? Sure. Christian answers for the new age.org. Excellent. And uh, thank you for being on the Minute to Midnight show again today, Marsha. And we'll no doubt have you back again uh, before too long because there's still loads more subjects we can cover. Okay. That's great. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Excellent. Folks, don't forget to like and share this video and subscribe to our YouTube channel and our iTunes channel if you haven't already done so. So we do put these shows on YouTube and on iTunes and of course on our website which is aminutetomidnight.com. You'll also find articles and so on on our website and we do have a community forum which you can join at aminutetomidnight.com as well. And all the music in the shows I write, play and record And you can download free music on our website, including this track that I'm using here, if you so wish. Uh, And we run A Minute to Midnight by donations, 100%. We really appreciate it when people do donate. It's the only way it can be kept running. Uh, So thank you to the people that help. Uh, It's much appreciated. So that's it for today. We will catch you with another show in a few days' time. God bless and have a great week.